Hey, party people. There we are. I'm going to have gummy bears. Not just any gummy bears. It has to be the Haribo gummy bears. It's something different about these gummy bears. They're a little bit harder, still lots of chew, lots of flavor, but just all-time favorite. Got it with me all the time, probably at the conferences too. <laughs> well, I hope we can still be friends after this, but the reason you love the Haribo gummy bears is the reason they're not my favorite. I like the Albanese because they're softer. No. no. <laughs> I know. Gummy bear divide here. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am Dr. Grace Pratt. I am behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency Program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And today I'm joined by three of our co-hosts, and we are going to have a discussion that's a little bit of an opening conversation of an introduction to value-based care. Before we get to that, I want to introduce everybody. Um, I'm going to go around the circle here in, in my view on Zoom. And so that sends us to Dr. Harrison. You're calling it into existence. I'm not Dr. Harrison, but maybe that means that's the road I'm supposed to be on. So I'm I'll just giving that. you that credential. <laughs> You're so knowledgeable. <laughs> I appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is Monica Harrison, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you, Monica. Oh, and I forgot to say my icebreaker question. So this morning on my commute to work, I was um, lamenting the fact that I do not have a vacation planned. I want to be on vacation. I want to go somewhere fun. Um, and so then I was thinking about travel snacks. Uh, and so I was wondering if you guys, as you're introducing yourself, would tell us what's your favorite road trip snack? What do you like to stick in the bag or in the car when you're headed on a trip? Absolute favorite road trip snack. Won't leave home without it. Doesn't matter flying, driving, cruise ship. I'm going to have gummy bears. Not just any gummy bears. It has to be the Haribo gummy bears that I think may be made in Germany, but it's something different about these gummy bears. They're a little bit harder, still lots of chew, lots of flavor, but just all-time favorite. Got it with me all the time, probably at the conferences too. <laughs> well, I hope we can still be friends after this, but the reason you love the Haribo gummy bears is the reason they're not my favorite. I like the Albanese because they're softer. No, no. <laughs> I know gummy bear divide here. Uh, well, that sounds delicious. And now I'm hungry for gummy bears. I think I was a little short-sighted when I chose this question because I have a feeling you're all going to make me hungry for road trip snacks. Uh, but let's go next to Dr. Beachy. My name is Bridget Beachy, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by trade and uh, very interested in all things integrated care. And, you know, I don't know if this, I, I don't think it counts as a snack, but literally every single time we go on a road trip, we stop and get Subway. And so like the automatic association that's paired in my head is <laughs> when you said road trip is like, okay, we're stopping at Subway, which of course I got to get sun chips. And then, you know, maybe stop and get some sunflower seeds for, for the rest of the trip. Uh, maybe a little Chex Mix might get crazy. Switch it up. Chex Mix sounds good. What flavor are you reaching for? Uh, either, well, original for sure. But there's like, I don't know if knockoff is the right word, but I like the cheddar one, cheddar anything that's related to Chex Mix-like. <laughs> Just need the variety in your snacks. You know, the I think the... The wisdom of having Subway be your road trip go-to food is it's everywhere. I mean, the tiny little town that my grandparents used to live in still had a Subway. So wherever you are, you can find it. That's smart. <laughs> uh, and then we have Dr. Serrano. Hey, everybody. Um, I am actually on a road trip. So <laughs> I'm coming to you. I feel like I need to paint the picture. I'm like the correspondent in the field. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm sitting in my electric car, uh, plugged into a charger uh, in a really small town uh, close to the coast of North Carolina. I just took a quick little workcation to the coast to just have a different place to work, basically. Uh, but I'm in between, so that's why I'm coming to you from the car. So I don't have a snack with me right now, but uh, if I'm going to do a snack, um, and I... You know, it's really, I feel conflicted because the snack that I like usually leaves me not feeling too good after eating it. It's one of those things. 
Uh, but it's, you know, those Snyder's pretzels that are like covered with like cheddar cheese flavor. I don't know what they're called, but that's the, that's the snack. And like, I'll eat it and then I'll keep eating it as I'm driving. And, you know, I'll get annoyed at all the residue on my fingers that gets on my steering wheel and other things like that. And, and then I'll, my stomach will get kind of like a little bit bloated. And then I ask myself why, why I ate it in the first place. (laughs) You know, road trip snacks, I feel like we don't choose them because they fuel our bodies. We choose them because they hit our taste buds at just the right spot. Uh, That sounds delicious and definitely feel you on the residue. I think my go-to, I love beef jerky. And I also like those sour belts, you know, the like skinny, chewy candy that's got the sour coating on both sides. They're so good. I um, went to Texas uh, a few weeks ago to visit some family and in Texas, I don't know how big the region of this place is, but have you guys heard of Bucky's? Uh, Our Texas contingent will be aware. It is this huge mega rest stop slash grocery store slash restaurant slash souvenir home decor. I mean, it's monster place they have really good sour straws or sour belts so it put that in the back of your mind if you're ever driving through texas or driving and then they have a whole wall of different varieties of beef jerky i I think okay we've spent way too much time talking about snacks now sorry about that (laughs) Uh, i'll take all the blame uh but i do want to shift us into our main topic but i know that niftali you had an announcement that you wanted to talk about first Sure. Yeah. So yeah, the big announcement is just our, our annual conference registration is open. I, I realize I, I went right into the snack and never even told people who I was. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm the CEO of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We exist to support healthcare professionals in integrating physical and behavioral health. We're excited to have our annual conference registration now open. It's going to be a uh, different uh, event this year, even than last year. So last year, because of the pandemic, we went virtual. So we still are going to have a virtual conference because we surveyed members and and uh, especially our presenters. And there was really still a pretty significant split in terms of whether people could come in person. So we wanted to make sure to make it as successful as possible to as many people as possible. So our main conference is still going to be virtual. We got grave reviews last year with the conference and how everything went. We're, we're really hoping to reduplicate that energy and that sense of connection that people really want. However, we also recognize that there's a contingent of folks who really do want to come back together. And so we're going to have a day, we're calling it the In-Person at Madison Day in Madison, Wisconsin, October 15th. That's the week before the virtual event. And um, so it's going, to be a, it's going to be a really fun, really engaging day. We're going to get together to really talk about the future of integrated care what we need to really keep the movement moving um, at the local and national level um, across workforce, payment reform, policy, equity and social justice issues, et cetera. And in fact, the idea is that out of this conference will come a white paper that serves as a sort of a flagstone uh, sort of moment for us to say, hey, this is, this is hey world, this is what we, what, we, what we want. This is our vision for healthcare. So yeah, for all those of you who are able to come, you know, we're including the price of in-person with the virtual conference. So you just have to pay for the virtual conference and you can come and are already registered for the in-person conference if you want. You can, of course, only do the virtual conference uh, if you like as well. The other key piece to know about the conference, it is uh, co-hosted by our Canadian friends. As we have a sister organization called Shared Care in Canada that has a very similar mission to ours. And so we're going to have a lot of great Canadian content this year, um, including a lot of equity content and social justice content. So, you know, as it turns out, we are not the, we don't have the market cornered on social injustice. So uh, we'll hear a lot about that marketing. So anyway, for more information, uh, go to integratedcareconference.com. That's integratedcareconference.com. And we really, really hope to see you there. It's going to be a fun event uh, October this year. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I hope that everyone goes and checks out and gets a little bit more information. It will be so nice this year to be able to have a contingent back together in person because there's just not quite any substitute for that face-to-face interaction. Uh, well, I want to shift us into talking about our main topic for this month. 
my thought is this could be sort of an opening discussion and then, you know, we could continue the conversation in a future episode, but I want to talk about value-based care. Value-based care gets talked about a lot. The term gets thrown around, but as far as what it actually means and how it's being implemented, sometimes the conversation in my experience hasn't gone past just those first few words. Um, You know, it's sort of this thing that depending on who you're asking, it's either the answer to all of our problems or it's going to create a whole new issue in itself. Um, And so I want us to talk today about kind of broadly what value-based care is, you know, what are the benefits and the hesitations, where is it being practiced and things like that. So I wonder if anyone might be willing to open us up with a little bit of a just on the fly discussion of what are some of the terms we might be using or how we might um, conceptualize value-based care. Well, I've got a, an analogy that can be helpful in thinking about it. Um, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see if this works. So you're the first audience I'm trying this out on. But I, I think of value-based contracting as far as the promise of it, similarly to the way um, we thought about cord cutting for TV services years ago. And you all remember, um, if you're older than my kids, uh, you know, there's a time when people are like, oh, the future is, is cord cutting, you know, and when cord cutting happens, you know, we won't have to deal with those cable companies and satellite companies, and we'll get to choose our, you know, what channels we want to watch, and we won't be stuck with all these contracts and stuff. And, you know, you fast forward, so that's probably like conversation in the last five, seven years. You fast forward now, and I'm guessing if we polled this group today, you'd see a huge mix of strategies you use to get the TV you want. And it's not as clear cut as what we thought would happen. We thought five, seven years ago, cable companies would go away. And we thought that cable companies would have to change their model drastically um, as a result of all the competition. What we ended up with was we've got a bunch of subscriptions to a bunch of different services now. And some of us are even still keeping our cable contracts along with some of the other subscription services that we have, right? And so I think of of value-based contracting in a similar way. It is not the answer to every problem that ails our health system. It is not going to fix everything. But it does offer some improvements, and the improvements will probably feel more iterative, much like the improvement of having Netflix and not having a contract. You know, it's nice that I can cancel my Hulu when I want to and not get, you know, uh, a charged uh, a termination fee. So that's an enhancement. It's nice that I can uh, maybe buy into my Fubo TV and get live TV for a couple of months. Like right now, I'm, I'm big into the Olympic swimming uh, finals, the U.S. Olympic finals. And so I've got Fubo, so I can watch that. So that's nice. But I'm not necessarily saving a whole lot more money than I would if I had probably a direct TV contract, right? It just gives me more flexibility. and allows me to um, have a little bit more choice as to what I want. So Back to the relationship with VBPs. Value-based contracting is pretty simple. It's not actually that complicated. It's not actually a totally new thing. There have been like versions of like what are called capitated contracts, which is basically an insurance company saying, hey, um, I'm going to give you X amount to care for all these people. And that's that's what you get. If you you can save some money off of that, great. Um, We can maybe split some of the proceeds of, of what's left over, you know. So there's been versions of that um, in the past. The, the difference is really the focus on the collaboration between the payer and the health system to say, hey, we're going to go after certain, uh, whatever we define as value, right? Whether it's we, we want to make sure that our diabetics are well cared for and not having uh, crises that land them in the hospital. Uh, we want to take better care of our patients uh, with hypertension etc. And what we're going to do is we're going to loosen things up so that you don't have to depend on office visits necessarily in order to see patients and get paid. 
Um, we're going to allow you to get paid for a variety of activities, whether it's a phone call or managing a registry or, or whatever strategy you think is necessary to care for these folks and get them better. We're going to allow you to do that and we'll give you a payment. It could be a per member per month payment. It could be sort of a lump sum payment to care for those folks. And portions of your contract might be at risk. In other words, if you do a bad job, maybe 5% of your contract might be at risk. The risk is usually pretty low in these contracts, usually less than 5%. Um, and if you do a great job, we, we can give you an extra incentive payment potentially, right? So those are nuances that make value-based contracting a little bit different than the old style um, sort of capitated type contracts, but it's not terribly dissimilar. What it does is it gives us a little bit more flexibility on the provider world to say, hey, what other strategies other than bringing people in for an office visit can we use to care for people to get the outcomes we want because we're not tied to the office visit for a payment anymore. Now, here's the problem and I'll, I'll end my diatribe here with this. Here's the problem. The fundamental problem and why, um, Grace, you said this doesn't go much further than talking is because this would be a lot easier if there was one payer that we had to do this with. But most healthcare entities have multiple payers. And with each of those, they each have individual contracts with those payers. So you would have to design individual value-based arrangements with each of these entities. So maybe with Blue Cross, you have 10% of your contract at risk and you're focused on cardiovascular disease. But with uh, Kaiser over here, you have a contract uh, that's focused in on emergency department utilization and uh, diabetes and mental health stuff, right? So all of so so if if you can imagine the the clinical and logistical challenge of creating all these contracts with all these different entities and then arranging your services so you're meeting all those goals, that's really the the problem. It's the fragmentation in our payer system that I think makes it really, really difficult for, for health systems to organize themselves around a contracting strategy. Sorry, I didn't mean to drop the mic there. <laughs> I think we're, uh, my guess is- No, it was a, it I was, yeah, I was taking a, a deep breath sigh, like, yeah, it's a logistical nightmare. Right. Like, so I'm listening to Neftali in the beginning going like, okay, yeah, this is awesome. Like the great thing about him being able to choose all these different streaming services and still have cable and all of that is that his quality of life and how he feels about his cable system, like he feels better about it. Therefore, like, all right, let's go with it. Um, which has been my experience. My first experience kind of with value base was in nephrology, because from the federal standpoint, there were particular you had to have an interdisciplinary team at the dialysis centers. But when you looked at um, particularly the VA, they paid you a set amount of money to manage whatever you need to manage. So if they needed to have more time with the social worker or more time with the dietitian or however that was, the clinics decided that. And you had this one amount that you were given for these population of um, patients that you had there which was great because it was about quality of life for the patients. What did the patient, this population of patients need? And that varies, right? From one population to another, from one patient to another, there's these different nuances. But there again, as Neftali said, it's a logistical nightmare because even if you do run across a payer who is willing if you have Aetna wants this, but then Blue Cross Blue Shield wants this, and it starts to add up and you find um, it can be very overwhelming for some clinics. Some entities, agencies, or clinics have very good relationships with their payers and are able to kind of negotiate um, based on kind of data and analytics they have to prove like, hey, this is why we know this will work and that will work. And sometimes you can get payers to do a pilot project with you before they, they kind of go all in to, to the value-based side of things with you. But it is, um, there's no one set way to do it. Value-based care doesn't look one way, right? So I think that that's the challenging point for individuals because we want like a blueprint, right? Like here's the blueprint, you just follow this. And 
that's not easy to do because there's multiple players and multiple factors to consider. So I think that is why the conversation stops at like, oh, this is a great idea. And like, that's it. Yeah. It's one thing for one household to turn their Hulu off and on, you know, when there's a new season of Handmaiden's Tale out. Uh, But it's a totally different issue when you're talking about a assist uh, like big systems the payer systems and the healthcare systems because also it seems like there's a movement in both places that it's not just one provider that's practicing independently but it's part of a larger health network and so that becomes even more complicated absolutely yeah value-based contracting is not likely to happen between like individual providers or even individual clinics it's much more likely to occur with a group of clinics or or a health system, um, in large part because in order to derive the value out of the care, you often need partnerships. And that's, again, one of the drivers of value-based contracting is to actually develop these partnerships. Um, Some people out there might be familiar with the term ACO or accountable care organization. Well, that's the idea behind those entities. It's basically different organizations that get together, form this accountable care organization to achieve value-based goals. So basically saying between a hospital system and a primary care clinic, hey, we want to make sure that people who have surgeries don't end up back in the hospital quickly. So, but we need, hospital says, we need partners to make that happen. We need primary care to do good outpatient follow-up for us um, post-surgery, right? So we need a partner for that. Same thing with social determinants of health, which we know are so powerful in terms of driving health outcomes. Like a a primary care clinic will have to probably establish partnerships to achieve some of its goals, especially if it serves an underserved population with a lot of social determinants of health present, right? So you might need to partner with a social service agency in order to actually get some of the outcomes you want, right? So if you have a homeless clinic and you want to reduce the incidence of cardiovascular disease, you know, you, you're going to want to partner with a social service agency that um, has services for housing or has services for outreach, et cetera, in order to make sure that you can make sure people are on, on their medications, that they're coming back in regularly, that they um, have all the supplies they need uh, for their self-care, et cetera. So all these pieces are pieces that require partnerships to happen. So again, in principle, that's fantastic. I love that piece. That speaks to whole person care. That speaks to integrated care, what we're about. And that's really difficult to cobble together in a system that fights against integration, right? It's a system that is used to fragmentation at almost every level. And I, and I think that's, that's the main challenge. I want to bring up another challenge that, that Monica also brought up, which is an interesting challenge I want to ask you guys about with with your particular settings, because the other key challenge with implementing value-based arrangements is actually an interesting challenge, and that is that clinics don't really know what they're good at. They They don't often collect or use data adequately to say, hey, actually, we know we can offer a payer excellent outcomes in this area, which sounds weird because you'd think like clinics would have that sort of level of self-knowledge, but that level of self-knowledge is absolutely crucial to entering into a contract. It's like whenever you enter into a negotiation, right? You, you want to be able to say, hey, I can do this for you if you do this for me. So we want to tell the payer, hey, hands off our, our methods because we know how to take care of patients with SPMI, or we know how to take care of patients with behavioral health conditions really well, because we have got a great integrated care team. And here are our outcomes related to that. But a lot of clinics don't know that about themselves, or they don't collect data in order to go to the negotiation table with the, with the payer. Um, and again, usually this is not just one clinic, but a system and, and say, hey, let's, let's develop a contract based on this. A lot of times, clinics or entities are, are really waiting for the payer to dictate the terms of the contract. And then we get stuck with a bunch of HEDIS measures that really don't have a whole lot to do with good patient care, that we get stuck trying to figure out ways to, to you know, meet those sort of arbitrary metrics when we really could have said, hey, we're, we're actually pretty good at this. So, so that level of self-knowledge is really, really important and something that clinics have to develop before 
they enter into a value-based arrangement because they have to really show that they can produce that value, right? What is the value you're producing? That's, the, that's, what's, that's what's gonna help you go to the table and say, hey, we can give you this if you give us that. So my question is for you guys at your clinics, how much do you think your clinics know about what you're good at? What value you actually drive? Like from a data standpoint, how, how intimately do you think your clinics know that? I would say, um, because I work with multiple clinics, it depends on the clinic, but just in average, um, maybe 5%, 5-10%. It is something that usually when I'm working with individuals, I'm asking them like, well, what are your quality metrics? What are you guys tracking? What does it look like? And I find that most of them are just like, well, we're tracking how many visits we've had, um, you know, how many warm handoffs we've had. Like it's just to that level of tracking and not so much looking at multiple, um, I was going to use the word intertwining because I don't know a better word to use, but like also looking at how that correlates to health outcomes, right? Like going just beyond how many visits you're getting and are you hitting the mark with your six visits a day? Um, So most of them seem to track that, but not beyond. And many, you know, aren't aware that when I say it's, you go for contract negotiations, you know, your system goes for contract negotiations with a payer. It's a negotiation, which means we're supposed to be going back and forth, like having some dialogue and not just the payer saying, here's what we're going to pay you for this. And then you go, oh, okay. Like it's negotiations for a reason, but I agree with Neftali. Like you, you have to be able to show them that you could do it. You got to, you know, put your, I was going to say, put your money where your mouth is, even though you're not the payer, but you have to be able to show that like you can produce the outcomes and you can't show that if you're not tracking it. If you haven't decided, um, you know, as a system, how to do that, who's going to be the one that's kind of going to lead that charge for um, the team and put things in place where you can actually capture it. Like, it's not just even knowing here's what we want to do, but then how are you going to make sure you, like all that has to trickle down to how you're going to make sure you're going to be able to capture it for the people that are actually doing the service delivery part of it. So yeah, and I, think I would say very low amount. I think that last part that you said is really important about that communication between who's driving these issues and then who's doing the patient care and then the patients themselves, because it seems like there can be a lot of disconnect sometimes between the system will say, okay, now we're tracking this. And if there's not the same level of like investment in understanding why it's important and wanting to engage with that at the provider level, then it can become sort of a, well, you're doing this thing wrong and you need to do that thing better. And it can create more divide between the system and the providers. So we need to have sort of a unity and purpose around this. And um, it can get overwhelming, I think, when it comes down to the individual providers and the individual patients. Because if I know, okay, my system is needs to hit this certain benchmark on the quality metric for colonoscopies, and I'm sitting in the room with a patient who will not get their colonoscopy, it's hard to translate that individual encounter and to remember that we're talking about batch data. We're talking about big groups of people, you know, and that there is some wiggle room and understanding that, yes, there are some patients that will never, ever, 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 ever go get their colonoscopy. And so it's not that we have to, you know, force that patient into that, but we need to recognize where this is a population level issue. So anyway, I think there's a provider education component that sometimes is missing to get that buy-in and understanding and to not get so fixated on the individual encounters and patients, but to remember that it's part of a bigger picture. So saying, I know in our system that there's, this is pride that we're going to work with folks who are the most vulnerable, who maybe be the folks that might have the most difficult time to be able to get outcomes with a capital O. Uh, So that's another thing that kind of plays in people's minds. And then uh, speaking to what Grace was saying, there's this pressure that when they, when, when metrics are gone, gone over, okay, we got this situation with high blood pressure, this situation with diabetes or immunizations or well child checks. It, it is kind of like this fear as the physician, like, well, yeah, if we're not, if we're not meeting that, well, that means I'm doing something wrong. And then there, you can almost kind of see it happening before your eyes where 
they're going into visits and now they're being even more uh, authoritarian and saying, okay, this needs to happen. And then I had one provider. She's like, well, I mean, what, what, you know, she doesn't work there anymore. It's been a long time, but she's like, what the bleep do you want me to do? Go home with these people and make sure, you know, knock the whatever out of their hand when they go to eat it or, you know, the cigarette out of their mouth or, and, and, you know, I, and I was able to really have empathy for, you know, where she was coming from. And the ironic thing is if we use more of a motivational interviewing approach and conjuring up patient autonomy, which is like the last thing that most folks feel when you feel this pressure is if you feel the pressure, it's like, okay, well then I need to tell everybody everything, which actually has the opposite effect. So uh, I think that that's another way in which myself and, and the BHCs at our clinic is we have a huge role to play. We're talking to folks about motivational interviewing and uh, reorienting them to the larger picture, as Grace was saying. Uh, and also, uh, I don't know exactly how to resolve the issue with, we pride ourselves on taking folks that uh, struggle the most. And so I'm not really sure how to reconcile all of that. I've never put this quite together like this before, but it seems like one of the potential pitfalls and how we need to rework our consideration and the provider education is, you know, motivational interviewing says when we have our aspirations for behavior change for patients, those get us into trouble. And in some ways, our quality metrics are kind of our systems encoding these aspirations for behavior change for our patients. And so what do we do with that discordance? Well, and I'm so glad the conversation got to this point, because this is where the rubber hits the road for most of our listeners, right? It's not, you're not, most of us are not going to go out and, and negotiate with a payer, right? But it's really important for us as providers to uh, communicate with our own administrators about what we're really actually good at, right? Because again, if we can go to a uh, payer, but we meaning uh, a health system, with metrics that make sense, metrics that align with what things we actually can provide as far as value. And hopefully those metrics also align with values the payer may have about whether it's health outcomes for the patients or cost outcomes, things like that, right? But we have an opportunity to educate our own internal uh, leadership around what we do well as care teams. And I don't think we often do that. I don't think we creatively think about uh, collecting uh, data. For example, let's just say we collected data on what percent of patients with um, diabetes are at what stage of change with regard to, let's say, medication adherence, you know, say 100% medication adherence, right? Well, that'd be pretty interesting data to see. And then we could say, well, for those patients that, you know, uh, work with our BHCs on staff or with our uh, dietitian, uh, you know, we're able to, to move patients across the stage of change, uh, across the stage of change uh, successfully within, you know, a nine month period from maybe contemplation to preparation, right? That, that's so, sort of the kind of creativity I'm thinking about, that if we are able to begin to assess our population uh, metrics along the lines of things that we're good at, let's say we're good at motivational interviewing, but we don't have this arbitrary metric that has to cut across every single patient in the population, because we know that there are very, there, there's differences within the diabetic population in our clinic, right? We know that from a clinical standpoint. So I feel like if we got more interested in telling the story of what we do and educating our own administrators, they then could keep moving that knowledge up the chain up to the folks who are doing this contracting work, whether it's our own CFO or whether it's a CFO of a larger institution or entity that we're a part of, right? And I think that's, that's the call for us in preparing for value base. It's really just hey, how do we tell our story? How do we tell the story of what we can do well so that it can be recognized effectively? And then we can get the benefits of having more flexibility in the way we provide care so that the only thing we get paid for is just seeing the patient face-to-face. -face. You know, that's, that's really the conundrum right now. We're, we're hampered by the, 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 the fact that 99% of what we get paid for is seeing a patient face-to-face. Neftali, I think that you're bringing up a really good point. I feel like 
I'm a broken record with regards to talking about context, but if you look directly from the medical literature, the number one influencing factor for patient adherence, and we know how much money and things are on the line when it comes to adherence, is the healthcare systems and the provider's knowledge of the patient's context. So that's not this like, you know, super fluffy, soft science that's from the medical literature that says understanding a patient's context is the biggest factor with regards to adherence. And so uh, I, I feel like I say that a thousand times a day. Uh, <laughs> like, well, if we don't know the patient's context, uh, then we're going to be asking them to do things they can't do. Then they're going to come in and they're going to get a lecture. They're going to disengage from the healthcare system. So the uh, thing that I'm on and Dave is to my partner in crime is patient engagement and context and meeting folks where they're at, which I know of course has the flavor of motivational interviewing. It's kind of all interconnected. And I tell our physicians, our resident physicians, our nurses, our C-suite as often as is possible uh, that, and it, and it makes a huge difference. And it really does take some of the, the, the pressure to be authoritarian, which again, we know has um, an ironic uh, back. Yeah, it, it works in the opposite way uh, that you don't have to go in and you know, lay the hammer down with patients. You have to go in and connect with them, stop lecturing them, understand their life, understand their values, and then see, you know, that's the art of the medicine, right? You know, art of medicine in general is making all these connections. So, uh, Neftal, I, I love that. And I think that any BHC in their system can start doing that today. Well, I'm going to be the, the amen corner to what Bridget said and kind of tying that in. Um, I had a medical provider that I worked with for many years, Dr. Roberson um, over in North Carolina, that talked about this triangle model. And in that triangle model, it talked about when treating a patient, what does the research say? What is the provider's clinical expertise? And then the biggest thing was what is the patient value, which to me goes right back into what Bridget's talking about in terms of context, right? Understanding some of these other elements that is impacting the patient, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, being compliant, that that's the part that's often missing. Um, I've been a part of a couple of agencies that have these team, like really robust team meetings where they actually have multiple, it could be like care coordinator, someone from housing, some like all these different entities, pharmacy, all of these entities sitting at a table discussing this provider's list of patients. And it's been eye-opening to see providers listen to the other people that are sitting at the table that as the provider is talking about, well, you know, their viral load count is going up and da-da-da. And someone says, oh, well, you know, they just had such and such and their family die, you know, and then someone else says, oh, well, you know what? I can go out because this is someone who does home visits that's on this team. Like I can go out and visit them. Let me see what's going on in the home. Like just to have this level, um, which then kind of ties back into what Neftali was talking about, value-based, where it doesn't always have to be this face-to-face -face in the clinic. You're able to give the patient or populations of patients what they need based on the context of what's going on for them, to engage them and then get better buy-in from the patient standpoint. And then it all just trickles down to outcomes and everything else. Yeah, I think this speaks to something I was really hoping that we would talk about is why do value-based care and integrated care come up in the same breath so much of the time? It's not that they're essentially necessarily have to be the same thing, but for it to be done well, it does open up some opportunities for more integration because of the differences in the logistics of the payment, but also to get the outcomes. I mean, I know that yeah, like we we are an organization that is fighting for this change and that uh, is a little biased. So I'll speak that, you know, acknowledge that. But integrated care is the path to getting a lot of these outcomes. And it's not just the other thought I was having as you were talking was, in my experience, when doctors roll their eyes about meaningful use and outcome numbers, it's not because they don't want accountability. It's not because they don't want the best care for their patients. It's because these numbers, you know, and they'll say, oh, meaningless use. They're, they're just numbers. They're arbitrary. They don't mean anything. And so to have it become a thing, um, you know, for the team to be connected to those outcomes, for them to truly be meaningful and live up to their name is sort of the aspirational goal of everything that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think what I would 
encourage our audience to think about is, you know, when you think about value-based payment, just think, what do I really want to get paid for? What is it that I do that I really feel like I deserve to get paid for, right? And and most people will say, well, because I do a good job. I do a good job with my patients. Then I would just encourage you to drill down a little further. What what do you mean by you do a good job? What is it about what you produce or, or add value to that, that says you do a good job? And then I would encourage you to think about, well, how is it that you do a good job, right? And you might think exactly about what Bridget and Monica talked about. And you said, well, we've got a team together and our team works so well together around patients and we're flexible. We're able to, to do a home visit when we need to. We're, we, we're like at Bridget's clinic where it doesn't matter when a patient walks in, they, they can always have access to behavioral support. And we do a good job of engaging people motivationally and contextually grounded in contextually grounded ways that meet them where they're at. And so they stick with care longer with us, right? That's what, that's the value, right? You're defining the value. That's what you want to be paid for. You don't want to be paid for an office visit. You want to be paid for the great work that you do. And so value-based purchasing is an opportunity to redefine the way you get paid for what you do and make it so that, you know, everything you do is essentially paid for, right? Every time you look in through a registry of patients, that's part of the value you're providing. Every time you make a phone call to a patient, that's part of the value you're providing. Every time you send a message through the, uh, the EHR portal to a patient to connect with them, to ask them how they're doing, to send them a survey, a, a screener, um, that's part of the value that you're providing. Every time you make a call to a social service agency to link the patient with uh, services or to figure out if there's availability, that's part of the value you're producing. There's all these ways in which right now there isn't a mechanism to recognize the value of integrated care teams. And this is back to your point. This is why this uh, value-based payment and integrated care often comes up. It's because it's recognized, widely recognized, that an integrated care team, in addition to an integrated system, is fundamental to actually bringing better value and better outcomes. We still have a long way to go, both in fostering integrated care teams and uh, integrating the system better and in recognizing and paying for that kind of system. We still have a long way to go. But, you know, I'm ever hopeful because of folks that I talk with all the time who are members here at CFHA who are making it happen and who are driving that value. And in fact, I see, I often see my job is just, my job is to tell those people's stories to the world like say, hey, there's so many people doing fantastic work out there who have teams that are rock solid teams. I mean, they work so well together. If all the systems uh, in the US worked as, as well as these teams did, we would be driving tons of value. That's, that's what gives me hope, even though you know, it does feel like we're forever in this never ending conversation. I- on that inspiring note, I'm going to close our conversation. Thank you all for the thoughts that you shared. And I, this really does feel like an opening of a conversation to me um, that I hope we can revisit. I'm going to take us to our special segment now where we talk about a specific educational opportunity that's happening for providers around value-based care. Okay, so we are joined by some special guests this month who have developed a training opportunity uh, around our area of value-based care. And I wondered if we could just start with a little bit of an introduction. Would you mind introducing yourselves to our listeners? I'd I'd be happy to. This is Trey Cockrell. Uh, I work at Humana. I've been with the company for almost 20 years, and I lead strategic relationships. And part of that is uh, working with the University of Houston uh, in professional care, in professional education and working with our Humana Institute there and with Dr. Woodard, who I'll let introduce herself. Hello, I'm Dr. LaChauncey Woodard. I am a general internist and faculty at the University of Houston College of Medicine. So it's our new College of Medicine where we are welcoming our second class uh, this week. Uh, Some of them have been joining us, so very exciting. I'm a professor in the Department of Health Systems and Population Health Sciences and also direct the Humana Integrated Health System Sciences Institute. It's a big name, but uh, really reflects the collaboration that we have with Humana to think about how 
we engage our learners in understanding more about value-based care through interprofessional education, community engagement, and research. So I'm really excited um, that I get to work with colleagues across the University of Houston, as well as our colleagues um, at Humana to advance this really important topic. Awesome. I was able to see some of the resources that you guys have put together that are hosted on the Humana site that were really uh, informative and great resources that we'll also plug in some links to the show notes for our listeners to check out. But I wonder as we're starting, um, you know, this conversation, if you could give a a bit of a working definition when we're talking about value-based care, I know that's a really broad question, but just some context for our conversation. What are we referring to? I'd be happy to start. And I would, I would say, First, Grace, that there's there's not a lot of agreement necessarily on what is value in healthcare and, and really definitions on population health. We did a Delphi panel a few years ago, and 20 experts from across the, the country really couldn't agree on definitions of both. But in its simplest form, we really think of it as whole person care. Um, how do we provide care that focuses on on health outcomes as opposed to just sick care, and provide ways uh, for our physician partners to be able to practice medicine the way they want to practice medicine, the way they they really thought about medicine maybe before they went to medical school, and maybe got trained in a fee for service model, but one that that brings together professional resources to work in teams and really again to focus on on whole person health and health outcomes and spend time understanding things like social determinants and the resources to support people who have those specific kind of needs, and then define ways to do that in a proactive way that helps patients who have chronic conditions and who have those social issues um, get better health outcomes, uh, do that at lower cost, and, and do it in ways that improves the physician experience as well. Yeah, and I'll just add uh, to what Trey shared, which I think was a really nice overview. Um, when we think about value-based care, we're really thinking about uh, creating a healthcare delivery model where providers, and when we say providers, we're talking about hospitals, physicians, and all of the members of the interprofessional healthcare team are paid um, rather than on a fee-for-service basis, instead for the outcomes that their patients achieve. And so the goal with value-based care is to have healthier individuals and healthier populations. And so typically when we think about value-based care, um, our healthcare teams are being rewarded for helping patients to improve their health, um, helping to uh, prevent the incidence of chronic disease and also to better manage chronic disease when it does occur and then live healthier lives. And in so doing, that requires that we think not only about what happens in the clinical encounter, but we also think about what happens when individuals are not in the clinical setting. So thinking about the places where individuals live and work and play and all of those social determinants of health that come into um, play when we're thinking about the health and well-being of our communities and our populations. Thank you for that. And, you know, I agree with what you said that there's a lot of different ways that people talk about this and a lot of definitions that they come up with. And so I appreciate you sharing some common language so you can understand your perspective. Um, One of the things that came up in our conversation uh, with our podcast team about value-based care is that this is kind of a a sea change shift in some ways, that it's a very different way of operating. It's not just a small, you know, we can tweak these couple of things and then we're there. And so I was wondering kind of from, from your perspectives, what kinds of training, like what is the path from here to there? What are the things along the way? And I know there's a big training component of that. So that's one piece, but what else needs to happen for this change to occur? Well, I think you mentioned one thing that's very important, and I think that is the aspect of training. And more so than training, it's really creating experiential opportunities for um, students very early on in their formative stages to be able uh, to work together, to learn from each other, um, and to learn the value that each member of the interprofessional team brings to bear. I think when you have an understanding of that as you move out into practice, that um, whole person approach that uh, involves the broader interprofessional team is a much more natural transition if you've been able to learn and engage um, in that as you've gone through your training. So I think that training is an important part. And I think education is an important part. It's not easy um, oftentimes to transition from the way we've been doing things to a new way. And so I think um, education and thinking about ways that we can facilitate those transitions are helpful because we know that individuals are busy in clinical practice. Um, sometimes certain practices may not have the resources that are required to make these shifts and transitions. So I think importantly, thinking about this from a more systems level and thinking about what 
practices need broadly, not just sort of large healthcare systems that may be uh, able to do this more efficiently and easier, but also thinking about practices that um, are taking care of individuals out in the community who may lack those resources and how we can provide those and help those practices to be able to transition to these models of care. Yeah, and, and Grace, I would add to that to say it, it can feel daunting, you know, for someone who's been in practice for a period of time, uh, who's really focused on episodic uh, care and fee-for-service kind of operations. It, it can feel like it's a huge change, like you said, a sea change shift to, to get to value-based care. Um, we do provide resources as a company and support uh, providers in that transition progress. Uh, the real thing about this value-based care specialization program that we created with the University of Houston and is housed on Coursera.org is it offers a process and a plan to help physicians go through and think about how to transform a practice. Um, it's also applicable really for anyone who's uh, in, the, in the healthcare industry or even anybody on the outside of it you know, who wants to learn more to really understand what value-based care is, uh, how a, a practice can transition, um, how your role as a as a PA or as a nurse or as a, an integrated clinical pharmacist or, or somebody else, again, tangential, can, can really provide value to that transition and help with that transition. And so we are, are very excited about the program. We have uh, over 5,000 enrollments already, excited to get many more people enrolled in the program and, and know that it can be a valuable resource to help people through that transition along the path to value. And I would just add um, to what Trey shared. Um, one of the ways that we intentionally designed this course is to make it easy for individuals who are out and busy in practice to take the course or for uh, you know, lay individuals who just have an interest in understanding um, how they are able to engage in the healthcare system and engage with their healthcare providers to make sure that um, they are working in partnership to achieve the best possible outcomes. But the way the course is developed, there are six modules with a capstone course that individuals would choose to engage in that, but it's self-paced. And so I think that's important because oftentimes, you know, when we're out in busy practice, we can't sit down and just go through, you know, a whole course at one time. So the nice thing about it is that um, the course is self-paced, it's online, um, and it's asynchronous. So it allows you the opportunity uh, to engage in the time and space that you have available. Um, so I think that that's a really important aspect of uh, courses that are available on Coursera and particularly this course. Yeah, I wonder what else you could tell us about the development of this resource. So we, uh, we convene resources across the Humana Enterprise as well as uh, partnering with the College of Education, College of Medicine, uh, and resources at the University of Houston to really come together and understand the whole breadth and depth of the field around value-based care. Uh, developed an outline based on that, and, and as Lachance said, developed the six courses in the capstone to, to put it all together into to one package that, that makes it really easy for learners to go through and, again, at their own pace. You can take any one of the modules or you can take all of them. We use a lot of, of real-world scenarios and uh, make, it, make it easy with some videos and have a lot of supplemental information that learners can, can uh, access to really understand more about the topic and how to piece it all together. And then ultimately to develop that, that plan, if that's, if that's what they need out of this training, uh, to transition their, their practice into to more of a value-based practice. I think Trey encapsulated that very nicely. I would just uh, highlight a couple of things that he mentioned. Um, in particular, you know, bringing together resources from both our partner at Humana, but also here um, at the University of Houston. And what is really great about that is that at the University of Houston, we have multiple health profession schools here. So we have the College of Medicine, Social Work, Nursing, Pharmacy, and Optometry. And in addition, almost all of the colleges here have some focus on health, including the College of Education, which also participated in this. So we're able to bring all of those lenses to the topic of value-based care. And I think that's important because I think just as we want people to go out and practice in an interprofessional way, I think it's important um, when we're learning about this for it to have that interprofessional uh, lens and to have the different perspectives that are so valuable um, from the different health professions. And then adding on um, our College of Education, which has tremendous expertise in developing these sorts of courses with Coursera and online, we were able to bring that educational pedagogy as well. So I think uh, collectively it created um, a really nice course that um, we're seeing uh, quite a bit of engagement with and hope to continue to see um, individuals engage in the course and to also, you know, continue to hear feedback, which is an opportunity for us to understand 
where there are opportunities for us to continue to expand to meet the needs of individuals who are engaging in the course. I appreciate that you guys are, you know, describing this partnership that you've developed between your different institutions and also between all of the departments there at the University of Houston. Um, Because one thing, as I think about just the magnitude that this change represents and shifting, um, you know, our approach to healthcare and shifting to collaboration, it takes many, many, many partnerships to affect that system level change that we're hoping for. And so I appreciate the example, um, as you guys are sharing, and I wonder if there's anything else you might like to add about what that collaboration has been like for you. you know, I, I would just add that it, it was over a hundred people and, and thousands of, of hours and documents that we pulled together. And, you know, being able to, to bring together a public private partnership like this is not necessarily easy. And it's been one that, that we've worked at collectively uh, us at Humana and the, the team at the University of Houston um, really worked hard at, at developing this relationship, building out the institute, as what Chauncey mentioned, uh, that collaborates across multiple colleges uh, and, and works in, in three domains that we really haven't talked about. We work across research, we work across uh, community engagement, and we work across student success or education. And this has the ability to work uh, in a lot of those realms, but certainly in the student success realm, uh, helping, helping students learn more about value-based care, figuring out how we can get elements of this program uh, into the curriculum for, for students across multiple colleges at the university, and then finding ways to make it, again, accessible to a number of people outside of the University of Houston, outside of Houston, outside of Texas, and across the world. And we've received tremendous response from people who've taken the program so far, and uh, again, from all different disciplines, have just been been very positive, expressed how much they've learned about this. Um, it even hit really close to home for us as, as one of the folks who was helping us develop this. Uh, her father had a, a health event kind of when we're in the middle of this, and she had gone through all the content. And she said, you know, that really helped me deal with the health system and, and my father as he had this this issue. And she got emotional. She said, I, I don't know that I could have dealt with this effectively without having learned this. So it's it's really something that can benefit just about anybody who wants to learn more about the health system, about healthcare, about where health is going. And uh, as you think about whole person health or human care, as we think about it, uh, it really is putting the patient at the center and having that, that primary care doc as a quarterback for their health and finding ways to bring all those resources together and ways to treat them. And, you know, again, as a whole person. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that it serves as an exemplar of what uh, these sorts of partnerships are able to do. It was interesting because I met with our new students today and one was asking me specifically about this partnership. And so what I was able to highlight for this student and the broader group of our incoming students is that, you know, as we think about our population and we think about the challenges that we have, particularly for communities that may not have had as much access to care or may experience significant disparities, one of the things that you know, I talked to them about is that as a population, we're getting older, we have more chronic medical conditions, um, we're still dealing with issues like access to care and things that affect certain communities in different ways. And so what I shared with them is that, that these are complex problems and it's not just Uh, you know, medicine working in a silo that's going to solve these problems. Most of our patients who we see who have chronic medical conditions oftentimes have other um, social issues that are happening, and we need to be aware of those as healthcare providers, physicians, nurses, social workers, um, so that we can really help to address those and think about those issues that are happening outside of the clinical encounter. So it was a nice example to say, that again, historically, we've worked in silos, but as we think about the complex problems that exist um, in our healthcare system, and also sometimes that our patients experience, this ability to come together across sectors really allows us to think more innovatively about how we can address these issues. And again, try to ensure that our patients have uh, the healthiest possible um, outcomes and really live in a space of wellness. Awesome. Thank you both so much for joining me today and for sharing about this resource. We'll absolutely pass on um, some information to our listeners and our show notes. And I just, again, I'm thankful for not only the resource that you've developed and the work that you're doing to affect change, um, you know, from the level of the learners from the very beginning up through more seasoned clinicians and, and also lay people, but also the demonstration of the partnership that you have, um, because I think that level of collaboration is so critical to us learning, uh, being able to move forward as a system. So thank you again so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, you for, having, for us. having us.
Okay. And then as we're closing out, um, although he was unable to join us in person, I know DPO has been with us here in spirit and he sent us a closing meditation for the month. Here is a blessing for the road titled, May You Always. The author is anonymous. May you always have enough happiness to keep you sweet, enough trials to keep you strong, enough sorrow to keep you human, enough hope to keep you happy, enough failure to keep you humble, enough success to keep you eager, enough friends to give you comfort, enough wealth to meet your needs, enough enthusiasm to look forward, enough determination to make each day better than yesterday. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, Bridget and Monica and Naftali. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll talk to you again next month. 